GM, I'm Matthew Diemer. I'm Stacey Elliott. And I'm Stephen Graves. And this is GM from the Crypt. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. GM, everybody. This is our week in review. My name is Matthew Diemer. I'm sitting here with Stephen Graves and Stacey Elliott. GM, y'all, how you doing? GM. GM, I'm doing good, thanks. Excellent, excellent. Well, it's good to see you. It's good to be back for another week in review. Let's just get things started. This is a very interesting story that's developing right now. Regulators are taking aim at crypto staking. Recent news just came out that the SEC is taking actions and cracking down on Kraken. Ha! Steve, can you uh, give us a rundown on this? Sure thing. So Kraken has had to pay a $30 million fine for violating securities laws and agreed to suspend staking services in the U.S. following an SEC action. So it seems like uh, the SEC is cracking down on staking services in the U.S. Um, But this this also follows um, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong warning earlier in the week that uh, the SEC is taking a closer look at crypto staking generally. Do, do you guys think that there is a – so they're saying that the staking is a security. I mean, so the Howey test, we all know that like, uh, there is money put into a business that people are trying to – a third party is trying to create profits for. Um, do you think that this is actually a security? Do you think that they, they actually – the SEC has a point with this? I mean, I know Commissioner Peirce, who we've had on the podcast before, came out basically saying that this is not the way the SEC should be trying to kind of give guidance and create regulation because that's that's not what they've done. They've just kind of like we just have some an an action here. There's a fine being paid, but there's no clarity on what everyone else who's providing staking should do. It's just Kraken's not doing it the right way and everyone else is kind of trying to jump in and figure out okay, is what I'm offering going to be considered a security? So no, I I mean, we've said it before, but I, I don't think that this is the way the SEC should be moving uh, in the space. It also seems to be like there's two things running in parallel here. Um, on the one hand, the crypto um, industry seems to be reacting against this idea that all staking might be considered, um, you know, a uh, in violation of securities laws. Um, and indeed, last September, um, Gary Gensler, the SEC chair, uh, argued that like the native assets of proof-of-stake blockchains could pass the Howey test and be deemed securities. But this actual specific action is directed against intermediaries offering uh, staking as a service. So um, the SEC's actual argument was that when investors provide tokens to staking as a service providers, they lose control of those tokens and they take on risks associated with those platforms. So... That seems actually pretty reasonable um, to, to me, uh, but it does seem like it might be the thin end of the wedge that that uh, the SEC could be looking to go after staking in a more general sense. Um, you get the impression that the SEC kind of bitterly regrets the fact that they they uh, they said that Ethereum wasn't a security um, a while back because it was sufficiently decentralized. 
You know what I found interesting was uh, Coinbase's statement. They said, what is clear from today's announcement is that Kraken is essentially offering a yield product. Coinbase's stake in services are fundamentally different and are not securities. For example, our customers' rewards depend on rewards paid by the protocol and commissions we disclose. So they're trying to make a distinction between Coinbase's offerings and Kraken's offerings, even though they're both staking and air quote services. Do you guys see that there's a distinction there? Or I guess, do you think that Coinbase's kind of like trying to take out the competition by making this distinction? I mean, I think we're getting a preview of what they're probably trying to tell regulators themselves behind the scenes, you know, because they've said, I think, earlier this week that, you know, that's a service that the SEC and regulators are looking at for them. I guess they're just trying to repeat now publicly the argument they've already made, which is that, no, no, we're fundamentally different. You need not look here. I mean, Coinbase is also pretty clearly worried because earlier in the week, Brian Armstrong said, you know, we're hearing rumors that the SEC would like to get rid of crypto staking in the US for retail customers and call that a terrible path. So, you know, they're clearly concerned. Interesting. You can read all about it at decrypt.co with our great journalists at Decrypt. Next topic we have today is we have Three Arrows Capital. It's just many of the firms to collapse during the whole bankruptcy market down to actually they caused the bankruptcies and the market downturn, Luna, FTX, uh, all these other uh, brokerages and lending and Celsius and BlockFi. It's been a disaster. But liquidators of this Three Arrows Capital um, bankruptcy proceedings are saying that Kyle Davies, the co-founder, is withholding information. At the same time, uh, Sue Ju just came out and said that they're going to launch a new product. Stacy, can you tell us a little about this? Yeah, so this, this has been an ongoing saga. Uh, they... So according to the liquidators, um, they say that the co-founders, Suju and Kyle Davies, stopped cooperating with them, stopped responding to their, you know, communications like around July last year and haven't really been in touch with them, haven't been providing any kind of documents since then. Um, But they both got really active on social media around November when FTX started to collapse. Um, And part of this is because they had maintained even before FTX started to collapse or Alameda started to show signs of not being solvent that, you know, they were hunting their trades and that they had basically had this adversarial relationship with them. Um, And so now, like, there's been multiple attempts to subpoena them, both in the U.S. and in Singapore, where they're also pursuing legal action. And it's they keep saying and it keeps showing up in court filings that they're just not they've not been forthcoming with any kind of information that's helping them recover assets, because what they're doing now at this point is basically just trying to recover all of their assets and get control of everything that the firm actually owed so that they can pay creditors back. You know, they owe a lot of people a lot of money. Um, And apparently Kyle Davies has information that they need to get their hands on some of this and just has not been giving them anything. Uh, as far as everyone knows, he's in Indonesia, where technically, like, Indonesia is not going to force him to comply with this subpoena. And, you know, they noted that in the court filing, but they're they're basically appealing, the liquidators are appealing to the judge once again, saying, we need you to help us compel him to cooperate. Otherwise, we cannot, you know, do our duty and actually claw back all the assets that belong to the fund. And also... He's trying to raise $25 million, or him and a um, couple other founders, including Suju, are trying to raise money to start a new exchange, which is wild, <laughs> less than a year after their firm collapsed. You know, you know what I find very interesting? I think it's insane, honestly, is that not only that they're raising money, people are giving them money, but that they're raising funds for not just any exchange, but an exchange to trade 
bad credit or 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 debts or what 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 is this exchange about? I from what I've seen and I have to admit that that story I didn't write up I wrote up the one about the subpoenas, but from what I understand, I think this is basically like you can sell the debt that you're owed by them. Like this is this is meta to the point of being absolutely ridiculous. Like they <laughs> they created the reason that these people even are owed money by their firm. But rather than trying to work with liquidators to make things right so that those people can get their money back, they're creating an exchange where people can, you know, sell their claim. So basically, we saw a little bit of this happen with the the FTX bankruptcy and probably some of the other bankruptcies, too. So there's a bankruptcy. People are going to wait a long time to get their money back. What some firms will do is come in and say, look, I'll give you 50 cent on the dollar for whatever your claim is with this firm. That means you can have your money now. And that means that that firm that's willing to buy your claim is guessing and hoping that they're going to be able to make back a little bit more than what they're giving you. But they hope that because you can get your money now, you'll say, all right, sure, fine, I'll take this. Just let me get my money. You wait for them to give you the money on the back end. It sounds like this is just the ultimate degen play. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how how do you cause the bankruptcy and the debt for the most part by, you know, bad practices within your businesses and then try to capitalize off of that debt? By creating exchange to to buy and sell said debt that you actually owe to people, it just it's is this legal? Is it ethical? I'm shrugging. I want to I want to say aloud that I'm shrugging for the podcast listeners, the people who aren't going to see the video. I I have no idea if this is legal, uh, ethical. Absolutely not. That's an easy call. <laughs> I think this is just absolutely insta- insane. But um, I just want I just wanted to tie that into uh, Luna. I know that Luna and Do Kwan is you know. The Korean government is putting out like, you know, they're bringing them in, they're arresting them, they're taking their passports and allowing them not to travel. It has any of those attempts been made to any of these other founders? I know like Sam Bankman frieza is still a nominally, in my opinion, like how, I don't we're going to talk about him in a little bit. Like, how is he even able to um, actually let's just talk about him now. FTX and SBF, uh, there's new developments and their legal team now can subpoena uh, other people from FTX, but also earlier in this week, they just gave SBF the ability to contact again his coworkers or employees after they said you are tampering with witnesses by sending them emails and saying, hey, let's vet things amongst each other and let's catch up. And this seems as though like there's no unity in how to police or go after any of these founders that caused the destruction of, I think, almost over a trillion dollars at, at this point. I mean, there's a there's a whole industry of people who will help, you know, high net worth individuals basically make an escape plan. I, I guess that's the best thing to call it so that if things blow up, here's where you're going so that you can't be extradited. Here's where you should keep your money and in what kind of account to make sure that you'll have access to your funds, even if, you know, law enforcement tries to freeze your assets. Um, I mean, there was all... that case a couple of years ago where the former yeah. boss of Nissan escaped in house arrest in a box. <laughs> it was literally shipped out. So, you know, oh, t- tell us yeah. about that. Yeah. That, that. That was hilarious. Do you, you, you remember that story? Yeah. So basically he was under house arrest and he uh, he fled to Lebanon. And I think he was like packed, packed away in a box to, to escape this house arrest. It was a crazy story. Yeah, like people will apply for passports in other countries just to make sure that they can still move around. But, you know, not be arrested and go to places where, you know, the country won't care to arrest them, even if the U.S. or whatever their home country is is looking for them. So it, it's it's been really interesting to see how all of this is playing out. Um, I 
I don't know, like you shouldn't get a gold star for this, but it seems like Kyle Davies so far has been the most successful at trying to elude the people who are trying to hold him accountable. Um, Not so much for Sam Bakeman freed, but I guess he at least got the okay to message with people he used to work with. I mean, in that case, it feels like um, the authorities either feel that they have enough of a a hold over him that, you know, they'll, they'll be able to monitor his communications or whatever. Um, that they don't see it as a threat, or potentially they're they're just waiting for him to slip up and incriminate himself um, by doing so by communicating with his with his former associates. So you think that this is just a setup from the uh, prosecutor saying like, "Hey, um, we told you not to email and use WhatsApp and Signal and FaceTime before, but now you can go ahead and do that because we know you're going to mess up and we're going to use that against you." I mean, he's already demonstrated he thinks he's a lot cleverer than he actually is. So, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah. And I think there were reports that, you know, he he had hired other lawyers before he settled on the legal team he has now. Um, But they kept, you know, leaving and not wanting to work with him because he kept saying incriminating things on Twitter. You know, very public, very, you know, readable catalogable like there's no doubt a bunch of those tweets are in court documents um for the prosecutors who are getting ready to go ahead and work on this case so i mean it's i think they're kind of just saying you know what if you want to go ahead and say things that are going to help us have at it you know stacy you predicted that that he's actually going to get off with a slap on the wrist because of his connections because of his wealth because of uh the the money that he threw into you know politicians before he went broke um do you think that this even though they're trying to maybe set his ass up uh do you think that he's going to still get off do you think that this is playing out a different way than you predicted back in the year in review i don't know i don't think he's going to get off but i don't think the i still don't think the whatever time he might face or whatever punishment or sentencing he gets is not going to be anywhere near what the maximum could be. Stephen, what do you think? What do you think that his, uh, we, we made a prediction in the, on the, our year in review or, or your predictions and said, I think SBF is going to get something like 120, 120 years. Uh, Stacey, I think said 25 on the show. Uh, Stephen, what do you think is going to happen to this guy? I mean, it's tough to say. I, the, the, the big sort of hold he has is that he's embarrassed an awful lot of uh, politicians, not least because they've all taken his money. That could, you know, potentially backfire on him massively because they might decide to throw the book at him and make an example of him. Or it might work out that, you know, they just want the whole problem to go away and, you know, he doesn't embarrass them any further. So I don't know, you know, 25 years seems a little on the short side, but I don't know, maybe 30, 40. <laughs> that means he's still going to walk out an old man but he's still going to walk out of there that's a, that's a shame anyway you guys can follow this up and read all about this on decrypt.co uh, we're always going to be updating this story I think this is the most interesting story of the week Steve and, um, I think that A16Z DAO uh, Uniswap tokens there, there's this whole thing where people are saying that A16Z basically is Uniswap. Can you tell us about what happened over this week when it came to um, A16Z and the pushback that they're getting about you know, being a big stakeholder of the DAO or contributor of the DAO? Yeah, so basically um, Uniswap um, is currently undergoing a governance proposal to, uh, to use a bridge to deploy on BNB chain. Uh, and Uniswap deployed 15 million uni to vote against the proposal um, to use uh, one bridge that wasn't backed by them uh, and in preference to use a bridge that was backed by them. So the original proposal was to use the uh, the wormhole bridge to deploy on BNB chain. A16Z signaled in the temperature check phase that they prefer to use layer zero, which is a bridge protocol they back. 
Um, now, what that means is it's raised sort of questions over how much influence they have within the ecosystem because they can deploy a huge chunk of votes um, and potentially sway a vote, which leads to questions around how decentralized exactly the ecosystem is. Um, to some people, that's a feature, not a bug. They've said it reflects the free market. You can you know, buy votes. Other people have argued that it's an anti-competition cartel. Um, I think Uniswap also technically has more clout even than that in the ecosystem. So um, a report on uh, Coindesk said that, uh, according to a tweet from A16Z's head of engineering, Eddie Lazarin, um, they delegate around 40 million votes to outside groups, and they say they don't impose. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Conditions on how they vote. But an A16Z representative told the publication that theoretically their agreements with delegates would allow them to reclaim their delegated tokens. So effectively, A16Z is basically constrained only by a sort of gentleman's agreement from using its full clout in ecosystem votes. Um, CZ, the uh, CEO of Binance, weighed in and, and argued that uh, Uniswap is controlled by A16Z, although Binance itself also has a huge chunk of, uh, of Uniswap themselves. So, you know, it could just turn into a sort of knockout, knockdown, dragout fest between two uh, two whales over uh, you know, which way the the protocol is governed. But this generally is a, is a problem with um, with DeFi ecosystems because you've had a lot of a lot of uh, instances of like VCs getting in at the early stages, um, acquiring a huge tranche of tokens, and then basically having effectively the deciding vote within these ecosystems. It looks as though these are, are just like stocks, though. It's like you're basically buying a, a, a section of, of a company and making decisions. So, um, which makes me think that are these going to be the next uh, target of the SEC as securities? Oh gosh, who knows? I mean, the SEC is going after everything right now, isn't it? Um, I mean, you could make that argument that they are akin to stocks, but I think the objection that most people within certainly the uh, the crypto community have is that it seems to go against the ethos of decentralization. Like the whole point of this this great experiment was to wrest control away from centralized gatekeepers, and now suddenly you find that actually the purported decentralized finance protocols are not actually fully decentralized, and that you know big players are free to dictate the terms even more sweepingly than they might be able to do within, you know, conventional ecosystems. Right now, the DeFi community is especially, I think, sensitive and just a little up in arms about the idea that VCs or big centralized entities would have an outsized or even just a large presence and sway in the in the ecosystem because we just saw the whole thing blow up with Serum on Solana because of FTX and they had this secret backdoor. I mean, that that was one that you couldn't even check or look for. Like People knew that FTX had been instrumental in in launching Serum. They did not know that FTX could just kind of someone at FTX could go in and just kind of like exert their will and change the smart contract. Um, and then you know, there's also we also just saw, and this is 
Aptos is not the same as what Uniswap is. Uniswap is a protocol. Aptos is its own chain. But we did just see Aptos get a ton of blowback and criticism from the community because of how involved and how big a stake the VCs had. Like everyone's kind of labeling it a VC chain. So they're very sensitive to the way that VCs kind of throw their weight around. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, especially if, like you said, it just winds up being kind of like a mudslinging contest between A16Z and Binance. And and, and A16Z only owns actually 2% of uh, the total tokens from what I thought I read. Isn't that correct? I mean, yeah, that's the other thing is that, like, it is slightly overstated, you know, just how much influence they have. But on the other hand, uh, another problem that's been raised with uh, with these DeFi governance um, issues is the idea of like voter apathy that the, uh, the the wide mass of people who hold tokens aren't exercising that cloud, so they they still have an outsized influence in the ecosystem. Um, I forget exactly what it was, but uh, they, there was a report that they 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 could have thrown you know multiple governance votes in in the past by their influence. Um, so it's still something that has to be considered because if you, you know if you don't vote, then you you like with any democracy, effectively you're handing control to the people who do. Got to get out and vote for your candidates, for your protocols. My, my thing with with the whole DAOs and DeFi is, is that this is all programmable. This could have been different. You could put in uh, like guardrails or, or governance structures to not allow the like a winner take all system not allow or you can weight it you can average it you can do different things and yet it seems as though the DAOs even though DeFi and the people like Stacey you just said like DeFi people are are really upset that this one company is coming in here and buying all this thing but this is in the structure of the DAO it's like you can do this differently people of these different DAOs these companies these projects uh, these these DeFi projects can do this differently but it seems as though every time you get the chance to do something differently you don't and you choose not to. I don't understand why that we started this whole DeFi, DAO, kind of decentralized, not a democracy, some people say, but it seems like though it should have been a democracy of, of, of governance. And we keep making the decisions to have it a winner-take-all system. I just don't understand like how has DeFi lost the plot when it comes to these major you know, governance tokens? This is my opinion. Yeah, I don't know. I think... It was bound to happen, right? Voter apathy is just a human thing. You know, it's it's going to show up anywhere where you have some kind of system where people need to vote on things. Um, it, it's unfortunate that voter apathy exists and that people don't want to be more involved, whether it's, you know, their their society or their protocol or their DAO or whatever you want to call it. But um, it, it's a bummer. Like, I have seen, there's plenty of ones out there that try to do this delegate system where, like, okay, fine, you've you've got your bag of whatever tokens that grants you, I don't know, 20 votes the next time something comes up. You can just pledge those to somebody who you trust with your vote. But then that kind of build means that, you know, even people who don't have as much money sitting around as A16Z can at some point accumulate enough votes that, yeah, they could just kind of throw a whole vote. So, I don't know. It's I don't think they figured this out yet. I think all the DeFi community knows right now is that they're not comfortable with VCs throwing their weight around. I mean, the other problem with that system is that it it's a psychological problem. It's like people see that the you know these ten uh, validators in a network are the most trusted ones, so they go, oh well, I'll just throw my votes into that because they seem to be the ones that are working. And then those validators end up getting outside clout in the ecosystem. You see it happen in pretty much every DPoS system and and even though yes technically speaking you can pull your vote and and you know vote against your your validator um how often are you actually going to do that 
I mean, the other thing is Bitcoin maxis would probably argue that the problem at root was, you know, ICOs and the fact that uh, VCs were able to just effectively buy their way into controlling positions in all of these coins in the first place. So interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Read all about that at decrypt.co. Um, last thing, I think we have time for one more. It looks as though the NFT market has rebounded. We saw Bored Apes and CryptoPunks selling for a million dollars. We see these. What are these new tokens called where they're like almost like prints or like posters or whatever of the same token? So you like have the same token and you're just selling 16,000 of them and people are raising millions of dollars doing these things. Has the NFT market rebounded and what's going on? Oh, and by the way, Bitcoin NFTs, that's a thing? Steve, what's, what's going on here? Okay, so yeah, the, the, these so-called sort of Bitcoin NFTs are tied to a project called Ordinals, um, which uh, basically enables users to transfer, receive individual Satoshis that can have what's called inscribed data. And that inscribed data can be videos and images. So they're kind of effectively NFTs, um, but built on the Bitcoin network, not requiring a, a side chain. Um, somewhat predictably, it's caused a bit of an uproar in the Bitcoin community. Uh, Bitcoin Maxis have called it like an affront to the principles of Bitcoin, because not least it's, it's caused transaction fees to go up. Um, and what's happened is, as with many other sort of NFT platforms, we've seen the launch of like uh, knockoffs of popular NFT collections like CryptoPunks. So like the, he the headline story was that uh, one ordinal punk uh, sold for, I think, $200,000, which I believe is twice the floor price of a CryptoPunk. Although this was an extremely rare ordinal punk selling for more than an extremely common CryptoPunk. There's also another collection called Bitcoin Punks, which actually effectively duplicates the original CryptoPunks collection, but on Bitcoin. Um, but the big thing at the moment is that the the infrastructure for trading ordinals hasn't been fully established yet. So, um, you know, people are trading these things by, by OTC and escrow that, you know, deals are being made on shared spreadsheets. Um, but it's still, you know, there's a surge of interest in it. Apparently, um, I, I believe I just received a Slack message saying that uh, half of all the ordinals minted to date were minted yesterday, and it's about to cross 50,000 in total. So, you know, it, it's, it seems to be a growing space. So watch this space. It's very much a, a growing thing, like kind of back to the point you made at the, the top of this about, you know, NFT sales are coming back. They're much better than they were in December, they're still not great. I mean, <laughs> like NFT sales were way down most of last year. Um, so we're we're doing a little bit better <laughs> than things were uh, like for the last half of last year. But we got a long way to go before we get back to like NFT summer. Matt, you and I were on with Dan when he predicted that, you know, NFTs are surging back. They're coming back this year. Um, if that's going to happen, this is this is a good way to start. That might happen. I'll give his, I'll, I'm like maybe 75% of the way there with agreeing on him. You know, I really, I was really uh, thought what was interesting and I don't really understand it. If you guys understand this, please let me know. Um, NFTs is like definitely my weak spot in the whole uh, crypto space. Um, but open edition NFTs, I, I, I saw that uh, like artist Jack Butcher of Visualize Value sold like 16,000 identical editions of the open edition NFT for eight bucks a piece. Uh, we saw that some of these NFTs, these like checks NFTs, they are climbing in value to like $4,000 or a two and a half F, uh, rising around 51,000% in a month. Uh, they've generated around $26 million worth of volume in trading. And it's just this whole new wave of creating an NFT. Do, what is an open edition NFT? Do you guys know? 
I mean, apparently, so I'm, I'm going to be completely transparent here. I'm reading up on, um, so our cultural editor, Andrew Hayward, um, is like the expert on this. So for transparency, I'm looking at his story as we're speaking, but. Oh, I just said I'm the, this is my weak spot. I have no clue. Yeah. <laughs> no clue. Um, I'm, I'm doing a lifeline out to Andrew and I'm looking at his post now. So, uh. These aren't really new. Apparently, they were popular back in 2021 on Nifty Gateway. If I can characterize this, it it feels a little bit like NFTs want to be less of a just for the super rich. Like you got to plunk down like as much as you would on a house or a piece of real estate for an NFT and more so like NFTs for the people. So if they're selling for like, you know, eight bucks, that's such an easier entryway, you know, than... Than some of this stuff with the the punks and the board eight yap clubs, like the the original collections. I mean, to me, that seems like the way NFTs are going to go anyway. Like they almost have to, you know, in the early stages of any new technology, the artists pile in. They make artworks that sell for exorbitant sums of money. You had like in the early days of digital art, you had Andy Warhol making pictures with an Amiga, and it's almost like they're sort of testing the edge cases, the the edge use cases of this technology, and then eventually it becomes commoditized. And it's like a couple of months ago, I bought one of the um, the Lord of the Rings NFTs, um, which is basically the film. And it, it basically, I think it costs like $30. It was that's roughly equivalent to like what a Blu-ray special edition would have cost when it first came out. And that's kind of the direction they almost have to go in. They have to become, you know, commodity price, utility things. Um, the other thing I think was actually quite interesting that, that happened this week, if you want to talk about like the breakthrough of NFTs into mainstream culture, was the uh, the launch of the new Linkin Park video, which is directed by uh, Emily Yang, People Pleaser, um, right. and features the character from Shibuya. Now, I'm probably showing my age here by talking about like you know Linkin Park as as contemporary, maybe 20 years ago, but um, I still thought that was quite interesting um, that you know you're, you're seeing NFT concepts and Web three concepts like crossing over with the mainstream more and more. I think I think just watching her career just uh go go to the, the way it did I think it's just amazing you know people pleaser just you know how she was just from art to now directing um, uh, NFT music videos with Linkin Park I think it's just quite an accomplishment. I was gonna say it's I'll show my age too. It's really interesting to see a band that was you know critical to my angsty preteen and teenage phase embracing nfts and and embrace in like hiring her to do their music video um you know you you kind of expect it and it's almost not that you know catching uh really to see like brand new artists like people who are still up and coming trying to do this like there's lots of people who are kind of trying to experiment with all these different web3 tools that are out there to figure out how they can distribute their music and give more value to fans but to see lincoln park do it is is really cool as like you know a millennial (laughs) Well, for, to show my age, for me to be excited, I'd have to have Soundgarden come up here and start doing it. So last question about these open edition NFTs, because one thing that um, I, I think my at least the daily listeners are, are still um, probably waiting for me to answer is that these are identical editions, right? In the article from Decrypt, they call them more of like a print. Do you know if these are copies of one of ones? Are they like a, you know, so you had a board ape that sold for a million dollars, but then you sold a lot of little, the same board ape for eight dollars, but they're not the original, they're the print. Is that how it's working? Yeah, um, the the analogy that's coming to mind is like if you if you go to an art museum, you're going to see the original. You can, of course, go gaze at the original. You don't own it. Someone else might own it and have loaned it so that it can be shown at the museum. But you can, of course, go to the gift shop and buy a print of it. And, my, and it could be a very nice print of it. And it's going to look exactly like what's hanging on the wall, but it's not the one. 
Um, so I think that's probably the easiest way to explain what these are. Like, yes, it's going to look exactly like the thing that somebody plunked down millions of dollars for, but it, it's not the thing. It's it's really just like a print. It's your it's your take home. It's your replication, basically your copy. It's funny because it seems like everything old is new again. Like um, the idea of of prints in the uh, in the art market that's been around since the Renaissance. You know, Al- Albrecht Durer would have been the original NFT bro, I reckon, because he he invented the first like copyright mark. He got into arguments about copyright. He was selling prints of his uh, of his work, and it's just you know it's the same arguments over and over again. I have a I have a lot of art in my house and they're all prints because I can't ever buy the originals but I have you know good high quality prints from the artists themselves and I think Steve you're you're, you're exactly right this is the way that things are going to go I would love to own you know an ape or something I can't I don't have $500,000 for the ape I want there's no way there's no do way Do you want so, a house or do you want an ape <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the house I will take the house Stacy Steven thanks for coming on uh for this week's week in review this bi-monthly week in review weeks in review anyway we will work out the name of all of this but thanks for coming on and this was a great time great thanks for having me that's our show today thanks for listening gm is a decrypt podcast co-hosted by matthew deemer me dan roberts stacy elliott stephen graves andrew hayward and kate Irwin, and produced by zach edelman remember to rate review and subscribe on apple or spotify or wherever you podcast And as always, you can get more info on our website, including video with our interview guests. Head to Decrypt.co. GM. GM.